This is New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, vote for the crazy ticket. You won't regret it. Some of our greatest leaders had some mental illnesses, namely mania and depression, and that uh, therefore it seems that mental illness enhances leadership during crisis. An Englishman in Germany. It's not for English people to make fun of German food. It's because of the English food. It's terrible as well. And the very first Iranian film ever made. Uh, found in uh, some uh, box inside the Golestan Palace in Tehran. All that and more coming up on New America Now. Last month, Governor Brown took action on a number of laws that will have a direct impact on the lives of California immigrants. So what do the governor's decisions tell us about how he perceives the immigrant rights movement? Here to help us answer that question is Gabriela Villarreal, a policy analyst at the California Immigrant Policy Center in Oakland. She spoke with New America Media's Jacob Simas. So, uh, Gabriela, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you, Jacob, for inviting us to to participate today. Listen, as an immigrant rights advocate, how would you grade Governor Brown on his immigration policies thus far? He has taken some significant steps and shown leadership on signing bills that will have positive impact on the immigrant communities in California. And and give us some examples. I mean, there were some big pieces of legislation that uh, came across his desk. You know, he signed off on some of them. He he bypassed others. Uh, What were some of the big wins from your perspective? He took huge steps forward um, for California in providing critical support and protection for immigrants and their families. Most notably, uh, the California Dream Act and specifically the the, uh, provisions that would allow students that meet in-state tuition requirements to apply for financial aid at California's public institutions was a step forward, not just for the immigrant rights community, but for California. He also took major leadership in signing a bill that would prevent local jurisdictions from mandating a very flawed employment verification program called E-Verify. So um, uh, based on these efforts, uh, Governor Brown has taken strides um, to move uh, important legislative solutions for immigrants and their families. Now, on on the California DREAM Act, let's talk about that just for a moment. That bill actually had nothing to do with citizenship, correct? Right. It was really a legislative solution to give top students in California a chance to improve their lives and give them an opportunity to access support for uh, to support their education here in California. And when you say it was a victory for not only the immigrant community, but for Californians in general, I can imagine there would be a lot of Californians that would disagree with that statement. Uh, what you're talking about is, you know, undocumented students having access to uh, government dollars to subsidize their education. But explain to me what you mean by Californians, that being a big win for the state. 
This is acknowledging that Californians who have been in the United States since they were children and consider California to be their home, who were educated by California teachers and California high schools, an opportunity to continue their education at our public institutions and contribute to our future economic um, recovery. The, the sense that uh, California students um, will have all now have an opportunity to access necessary public education to, to all move us forward um, is, is certainly significant. Um, it's an investment in education, and it's an investment in the future. And, and just touching on the E-Verify um, bill, that was really, a, a, you know, Governor Brown uh, saying that businesses are n- not required uh, to vet their employees to check their immigration status. Now, it would seem that in all fairness, in, you know, if the the government on the one hand is cracking down on immigrants, um, why shouldn't they also be cracking down on employers to make sure that they're following the letter of the law? Well, I think it's a broader issue uh, related to the, the, the need for immigration reform at the federal level. Um, this uh, focusing on uh, businesses to uh, enforce immigration, federal immigration law is certainly not um, not the best policy to addressing the, the need for a major overhaul of immigration law. Um, in terms of small businesses, this is um, an important need for for them to to be sure that they can maintain costs and um, productivity, and their focus should be on. Um, creating prosperity for California communities and and employing workers. There is already a, a system in place for verification, but we need to make sure that both businesses as well as workers have an opportunity to um, to continue with rebuilding California's workforce and putting a barrier like a a flawed E-Verify program between people who want to go back to work and employers who need workers um, does not seem like the best way to um, promote recovery in California. So the governor did show leadership in signing this bill um, to be sure that those local mandates that could be harmful to business as well as American workers does not move forward. So it's, it's pretty fair to say, again, as we're kind of assessing, you know, where the government stands on, on immigration issues, that is it fair for us to say that his motivations are, are very much economic as opposed to humanitarian? I mean, I can only imagine what something like E-Verify mandates would do to the economy of California, which, you know, in the agricultural sector alone you know, really relies on the work of, of undocumented people. So the governor signing of, of the, not just the E-Verify bill, but a number of the, of, of the bills that um, would have significant positive impact on the immigrant communities show there is an opening that the governor um, is, is making for how he is planning to address policy solutions um, towards the immigrant population. It's uh, a balancing of really looking at how can we best in- invest in California's future, acknowledging the contributions of, of immigrants, not just in the past and today, but how can we support them in the future? Um, and that includes, you know, 
um, taking a look at the fair treatment of farm workers, for example, which he has been very proud of, of taking leadership on uh, farm worker legislation um, in California. So I think that there's a sense of um, not only trying to create a, a level of prosperity and uh, a need for economic recovery, but a will understanding that the governor gets about how important immigrant communities are to California today and for California's prosperity in the future. So, Gabriela, you're, you're painting a very rosy picture of the governor, um, but but surely, you know, there there must be also some disappointments, again, from your perspective as an immigrant rights advocate. Uh, were there certain bills that came across his desk that he didn't take action on uh, that were disappointments to you? It was really unfortunate that the governor vetoed a bill that um, would have targeted getting drunk drivers off the road. Um, this is a bill called uh, that called for clarity in DUI checkpoint policies, because uh, we have seen throughout California that DUI checkpoints have been used to net unlicensed sober drivers and getting them off their focus of stopping drunk drivers. Now, can you, uh, Gabrielle, I'm going to stop you there. Please connect the dots for me and for our listeners. What does that have to do with immigration? Certainly. So the uh, unlicensed sober motorists that have been targets of many improperly set up DUI checkpoints in California have been uh, primarily immigrants that do not have eligibility to even get driver's licenses here in California. So there's been a sense that from a number of DUI checkpoints that immigrants have been targeted uh, since they, uh, for racial profiling purposes, uh, with the, uh, uh, the presumption that they may be unlicensed and that DUI checkpoints around the state have really been focusing on getting at those unlicensed drivers instead of doing what they should be focused on, which is to stop drunk drivers. Mm-hmm. So so what is the alternative there? I mean, is it to stop all DUI checkpoints and just kind of give a free pass to whoever wants to, you know, get behind the wheel uh, when they're not sober? The AB, AB 1389, the Clarity in, in DUI Checkpoints Bill, actually uh, would help make the operation of DUI checkpoints more consistent uh, it would have applied the law in an effective way uh, by using uh, significant court rulings on the way DUI checkpoints are supposed to be conducted. So it is certainly not a call to end DUI checkpoints, but a creation of a standard and efficient way for how DUI checkpoints can be operated around the state. And uh, what kind of bills... Um is your organization, California Immigrant Policy Center, going to be pushing uh, moving into this next legislative ses- session? What What's on the table? Well, we believe that the governor's actions on these bills signal an unprecedented opening for us to all work with him in the coming years, as well as with the California legislature. Uh, there are a number of policies that still need to be developed to really take into account the critical role immigrants play in California's economy, as well as California's future. So in terms of some of the vital issues that are still left on the table um, from this legislative session 
are bills to address California's implementation on the federal um, SCOM program. And also, we look forward to working with the governor on the California Domestic Workers Bill of Rights uh, legislation. And we expect both of those bills to continue to move forward through the legislative process in January. And we look forward to working with him and the legislature to make sure those bills are are addressed and that um, they can truly there are goods, good policies that take into account um, the role of immigrants here in California. Well, Gabriela, thank you so much for joining us on New America Now. Thanks so much, Jacob. Gabriela Villarreal is a policy analyst at the California Immigrant Policy Center in Oakland. This is New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. You're probably not alone if it crossed your mind that leaders, people like bosses and CEOs and presidents, might be a little off kilter sociological and psychological studies have from time to time been produced that indicate that an abnormally high percentage of people in leadership positions are in fact sociopaths, people who lack a sense of moral responsibility or social conscience. A new book explores that idea by studying eight world leaders and their mental illnesses. Nasir Ghaemi is the director of the Mood Disorders Program at Tufts University in Boston and the author of A First-Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. Welcome to the show, Nasir. Thanks, Shirin. Nice to be with you. So tell us what your thesis is. What is the big conclusion that your book reaches about leadership and mental illness? Well, the main conclusion is that some of our greatest leaders had some mental illnesses, namely mania and depression, at least to a mild to moderate degree, and that uh, therefore it seems that mental illness enhances leadership during crisis. Well, tell us, be a little bit more specific now, because most people are going to hear that and think that doesn't make sense. I mean, you're, right. it's, it's basically like you're saying that mentally unstable or in the colloquial term, crazy people, um, are are good for leadership? Yes, I, I, it, it is partly what I'm saying. Um, you have to understand, I think, the context and the background, which is really what the, the whole logic and content of uh, the First Rate Madness book is about. So there's the two questions that need to be established. One is whether these leaders actually had mental illnesses, and secondly, whether those mental illnesses were helpful to them. As to whether they had mental illnesses, there's a good deal of historical evidence for some of these leaders that's relatively accepted. For instance, Lincoln had very severe depressions, had to be on suicide watch at times, and was treated by doctors for melancholy, which meant severe depression in the 19th century. Churchill had severe depressive episodes and was treated by his doctor with amphetamines, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't go to Parliament, wouldn't stand near ledges because he was afraid he would jump off. So for some of these leaders, the depression, for instance, has been very well established. General William Sherman, another leader, had psychotic mania at one point where he was removed from command in the Army 
by the military and medical leaders of the army and this is very well documented in contemporary um, journalistic records so again in some of these leaders that's really not hard to establish that they have severe depression or mania in other leaders it's less well known for instance martin luther king and Mahatma gandhi each made suicide attempts in adolescence and i try to document for them how they had severe depressive episodes in their lives and i did some uh, independent personal research at the primary sources of the medical records of the john f kennedy presidential archives and i showed that he had manic symptoms most of his life consistent with a, a, a personality that's called hyperthymic temperament and i show how this got treated as well and also worsened with steroids at times where his manic symptoms would get very severe and that then would lead to depression where he also had periods where his friends described suicidal thoughts okay well you so, you you've covered um a lot of issues in that response Let, let's let's kind of break it down who are the leaders that you studied for this book well winston churchill and uh and general william sherman from the civil war um and Abraham Lincoln, they all had severe depression or mania. Uh, Ted Turner, the entrepreneur, also has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and has been treated for it. Uh, Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi have had severe depression and suicide attempts, as I said. And John Kennedy and Franklin Roosevelt each had mild manic symptoms as part of their personality called hyperthymic temperament. Those are the eight leaders who I... Who, I didn't go looking for those eight leaders. What I did is I went looking for evidence of mental illness among great leaders in the 20th century, where we have some documentation, and those were the eight leaders where this evidence was present. Okay, so let's get into the sort of nitty-gritty of psychology and psychiatry. Most people understand what depression is, what clinical depression is, that it's it's something that keeps people in bed. It it keeps them slow. It keeps them inactive. I mean, there's a general understanding of what depression is. But mania and manic episodes are not as well understood. Can you explain that to us? Right. Mania means having a period lasting for a few weeks to a few months of decreased need for sleep so that one has markedly increased energy and doesn't need to sleep much and increased activities along with increased talkativeness, rapid thoughts, and sometimes risk-taking impulsive behaviors, but sometimes not. Sometimes it's just expressed as increased productivity. Uh, these people are often seen as workaholics, for instance. But the key is that it's episodic. It'll happen for a few weeks for a few, to a few months, and then that person goes back to their usual normal personality being normally energetic, not highly energetic, not extremely high. And that's what mania is. Usually it alternates also with periods of depression, as you just described many people understand. So how how do you diagnose how Abraham Lincoln might have been manic or how someone like, I don't know, Mahatma Gandhi might have had a, a suicide attempt? How did you get your primary sources or information okay. about these leaders? Well, Gandhi, all the primary, most of the evidence is based on primary sources involving either the person themselves in their memoirs or in letters or their family and friends in letters or contemporary journalistic sources like newspapers. Uh, or uh, contemporary uh, friends and, and family who report their uh, observations in their own letters or their own books. So the vast majority of, the, of this evidence comes back to these types of so primary sources. In the case of Gandhi, for instance, he very clearly describes his suicide attempt in his own autobiography. Martin Luther King's suicide attempt is described in a contemporary source in newspaper articles written in the early 1960s. 
and it's corroborated by other biographers. So you've discussed you've discussed depression and and manic episodes in these eight world leaders. Which one of those two elements, or is it both of them, is conducive to having a successful crisis time leader? Right. Well, I think the um, the, the two issues really are: do they have mental illness, and does it help them? Is, is it are there benefits? I described to some extent the kind of evidence that these people have mental illnesses like mania and depression, um, and medical records uh, as well uh, are relevant. In terms of how it helps or harms them, we obviously know there are some harms to mania and depression. What people don't recognize as well is that there's some scientific research to a notable degree which shows some benefits, especially when the symptoms are mild to moderate. So for instance, people who have mild depression are more realistic in psychological studies of their control over their environment than normal subjects who have no depression at all. People who have depression currently or in the past score higher on rating scales of empathy in studies compared to normal subjects who have never had depression. People who have mania have higher uh, scores on tests of creativity than normal subjects. And they also have higher resilience in studies of post-traumatic stress disorder those who have manic symptoms and are exposed to traumatic events experience PTSD symptoms less than normal subjects. You've referenced what you stated in your book as being the four key elements of some, men- of some mental illnesses that appear to promote crisis leadership, and you use the words realism, resilience, empathy, and creativity. And you just told us that depression has some of those uh, elements, and uh, mania has others of those elements. So right. which, which one of those, or is it either one? If, if, a, if a leader is depressive or manic, either one of those will make them an effective crisis time leader. Right. The research shows that depression enhances realism and empathy, and mania enhances creativity and resilience. They're different qualities. Some leaders only have depression, like Gandhi, for instance, uh, and maybe they're more, their strength is in the realism and empathy aspect of things. I think, in fact, that the politics of nonviolence is all about the, psychologi- the psychology of empathy applied to politics. Other leaders have both manic and depressive symptoms, and they would have all four of these traits. For instance, to some extent, Winston Churchill would be in that category. So, so this, is, this is fascinating sort of scientific and psychiatric information, but how do we apply it to the real world of voting? I mean, are you, are you suggesting that voters should just consistently vote for mentally ill leaders in case a crisis arises during their leadership? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that they shouldn't vote against mentally ill leaders. Um, you know, Shireen, my book has been out for a few weeks now, and I've had both negative and positive reactions. The negative reactions are often in the press or on the Internet. The positive reactions are sometimes out there also. But more importantly, many people writing me, sending me emails, and they're telling me uh, that uh, they have had these experiences, but they've been stigmatized by our society. The problem of prejudice or stigma against mental illness is, is I think, behind a lot of people's reaction to what is, you know, I think, relatively straightforward scientific uh, research and historical analysis. So it's not that we should be looking for mental illness, but we should stop stigmatizing and having a prejudice against it. Why is it important for us to not only know the mental histories of our leaders, but to to sort of sweep them under the rug when we're considering them for leadership? When you have examples in your book of people like Hitler, for instance, uh, who were severely mentally um, troubled and and who wrought quite a bit of havoc as a result of that on the world. Right. Well, 
the having a psychiatric illness or mental illness by itself should not disqualify leaders, just as having heart disease by itself should not disqualify leaders. But it seems that it should, have, though, Nasir, no, because it's it seems like you know Hitler killed people. He was. Is, I'll, I'll get to the Hitler example, but why do you, do you think that having heart disease disqualifies leaders? Well, I mean, it it was something that, for instance, wasn't had an impact on on Senator McCain when he was running. His health was a concern. If if people sure. are electing someone but, to lead them for four years, especially during troubled economic times and wartime, they want to make sure that the guy or the lady is is going to be alive for the duration of his his or her term. Right. And Franklin Roosevelt had polio, and it was discussed during his elections. But the issue was. If you have heart disease that's mild and controllable with medications, you can live for 30 or 40 years, right? So most people wouldn't view that as a major concern for a person running for president, would they? Well, I mean, but that's the voter's choice, and it's also no, the I know, choice... But my, my point is, by analogy, if you have a bipolar disorder or depression and it's mild to moderate, that shouldn't disqualify you. It's only the severe symptoms that are a problem. And in the case of somebody like Hitler... Someone could look at that and say, well, his symptoms were too severe. If we knew about this, he shouldn't have been elected. On the other hand, historical evidence actually is that his symptoms were relatively moderate before he started getting intravenous amphetamine every day from 1937 onwards. And if you give IV speed to someone with bipolar disorder, you can guarantee they'll get worse and worse. And that's probably what happened with him. Tell us a little bit about psychopathy and, and sociopaths, because there's a general understanding in, uh, amongst the public that that the number of sociopaths in in leaders is is higher than the average number amongst the the, the non-leader public. What what do you what can you tell us about that very specific condition, which which is actually something that is missing one of the four key elements that you mentioned, which is empathy, empathy for yeah. human beings. Absolutely. I'm definitely not saying that all mental illnesses are useful for crisis leadership and that I'm not saying that they all produce these uh, benefits. I'm only saying that mania and depression, to a mild to moderate degree, can produce some of these benefits. Not schizophrenia, not sociopathy, not necessarily anxiety disorders or personality conditions or anything else that psychiatrists manage. And uh, I didn't study sociopathy for this uh, research. I focused on mania and depression because of these benefits and because of the historical evidence for these people. I, I think it would be much more speculative to, to um, imagine who might have had sociopathy and who didn't. And in my research, I would say that mania and depression were much more prominent and relevant. Where would you put President Obama in the scale of normal versus ill mentally? Well, he puts himself in the normal group and calls himself well-adjusted, and certainly his handlers during the last election sold him to the public as a very normal, sane, no-drama, stable person. And I think uh, he may well be, and if he is, he probably would be better suited for normal, sane, no-drama times. But in times of crisis, the historical record shows that such individuals don't tend to be very creative and resilient and realistic. If he has a little more uh, nuance to him, though, which may be the case, he may surprise us, um, and he may indeed rise to the challenges that we now face. You've chosen eight leaders, and they're all men. What about the women? I mean, Condoleezza Rice and Maggie Thatcher come to mind as people that might be suitable cases for your study. Well, I went where the research evidence was, where the historical documentation was. Recent leaders are much less well-documented because they hide their medical and private information from the public. Usually this evidence doesn't come out till decades, 50, sometimes 100 years after somebody dies. 
So we really have to go back at least 40 or 50 years to get good evidence of someone having mental illness, probably. The most recent figure I studied carefully uh, in that regard is Richard Nixon. And even in his case, I, I find an absence of evidence of mental illness, mostly mental health. So the person most recently that I studied would be Kennedy, really, where I find any evidence of mental illness. So if you start from the 1950s and 60s and move backwards, there are not many women who had positions of power or leadership. I didn't choose anybody. I went where the documentation was. Nasir, thank you so much for sharing your fascinating study into leadership and mental health with us. Thank you, Sherry. It's nice to be with you. Nasir Qaemi is the director of the Mood Disorders Program at Tufts University in Boston and the author of A First-Rate Madness, uncovering the links between leadership and mental illness. You're listening to New America Now, dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. To German American institutions, around 40% of all Americans have at least 25% German ancestry. It's a fact they're proud of and which is used to encourage and strengthen relations between Germans and Americans. But so little of German culture seems to have remained in this country. Author Simon Winder has spent years traveling to Germany and Austria. His new book is a window into a Germany most Americans have long forgotten. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So tell us what your book is all about. Well, it's, uh, uh, I've spent years traveling around in Germany, and um, I suddenly realized that actually I was, without planning on doing so, I was writing a book in my head about trying to explain why I was there, because um, very few people in Britain go to Germany. Everyone goes to Italy or goes to Spain or Greece. And um, I felt I had some explaining to do as to why I thought it was interesting. And so the, the book kind of came out of that, really. And your book rather reads like a travel log, doesn't it? Yes. And I thought, uh, I mean, my real interest is in German history and why German history is so interesting. And it's fun to write about because people know so little about it. And it's so different from the history of the United States or, or, or Britain. Um, but I thought a nice way of doing it would be by having myself wandering around and actually seeing these places and seeing what they like today. Um, and, and that way it, it made it much more a mixture of a travel book and a history book. Well, Germany is, is quite an important country in Europe. It's, German is the language that's it's the first language, native language for most people in Europe. Uh, no other uh, language is spoken uh, more widely than German no, as, a, as a native language. But, and there's all those facts about you know, how Germany has been involved in so many important world events. But the question still needs to be asked, why Germany? Why, why didn't you uh, travel like every other tourist to, to Italy <laughs> and Spain and France? Well, that's a good point. And I guess I think, I guess I was just curious because it's so undiscovered 
I mean, it, 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 it has this incredibly rich and varied history. And initially, like everybody, I guess I was really interested in the 20th century and, and the horrors of the Hitler period. But then I'd, uh, once I'd started being interested in that way, I found that it was much more interesting looking at the earlier periods. And I thought there might be, a, there seemed to be a thing, something to say about uh, the way that Germany is such a different place that until quite recently it was split up into hundreds of little countries. And it's a totally different model of the world from something that you or I would think of as being normal or natural. It's just a different, different kind of a country in a way. So, so do you have a personal connection with Germany or Germans? Well, I work as a uh, editor at Penguin Books, and over for many, many years, and and there I myself uh, edited lots of historians of Germany. So it's been like uh, and editing books on like that is really fun because it's like being at college but without you know but but being paid rather than paying. <laughs> and so being able to talk to these people about their work, I suppose, is my real background, and that's what got me really fascinated. Und sprechen Sie Deutsch? Do you speak German? <laughs> well, the, the great embarrassment is I'm really terrible at languages. And um, I used to live in um, uh, New York. And I, the amount of time I used to waste at uh, NYU uh, on various German language courses, because I kind of thought I really should start off by learning the language. But I've, I must have started and failed to learn six or seven languages at this point. I'm just no good at it. But luckily, the, about Germany in particular, there's loads of stuff in English. Uh, and so... It was unfortunate, but not fatal, I think. <laughs> it's not exactly the easiest language in the world to learn. Oh, it's a nightmare. I really, try, I really tried hard. I, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult. I, unless you're someone who's really great at languages and naturally takes to it. But, yeah, it's difficult, definitely. So you must have come across Mark Twain's famous essay, The Awful German Language. Oh, yeah. I'm a big Mark Twain fan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wonderful piece. Um, and quite right. <laughs> I mean, he basically says that, um, and, and he had a fascination with Germans as well, had been there uh, quite a few yeah, times. absolutely. Tell us what he says in that essay, because I think it applies to what you just said. Well, I think it's, I, I, what I remember of that essay is his crossness with the sheer illogicality and craziness of the way that you can only tell at, right at the end of a sentence what the, what's in the sentence. So it's an entirely different structure from English, where... There was like a little word you'll tick tack on at the end. So in English you would say, "I bit into the cake," but in German the "into" bit is, goes at the end of the sentence, and so you don't know what you're quite quite what you're doing with the cake until you. And I and I think if you don't, I suppose if you grow up with that, then it obviously seems the most natural thing in the world. But I think for English speakers, it's just genuinely peculiar. Um, And I think Twain's also very funny, and I think because he was on the tourist trail in places like the Rhineland, he was very funny at the sort of um, really quite feeble little waterfalls and things that you'd come across and say, you know, back in America, we wouldn't, we wouldn't pay good money to see such a useless little waterfall or something. So, I mean, I think Twain is one of the first great guides really to German and Germans. And, and here you are following in his footsteps. What do you think is the biggest misconception about Germans in Germany that, that you sort of maybe conquered in your book? Well, I think it's the funny way that people, I suppose people for very good reasons are very suspicious of Germany. And I try and treat that quite seriously in the book, you know, like that the country, people in this country, that country have done terrible things. Uh, in the 20th century. And so what I was trying to dig out, what I 
what I was trying to convey in the book was a sense that this isn't, you can't really build this into their earlier history. Their earlier history is no better or worse than your country or my country. You know, it's, it's just different. And very particular things happen in the 20th century that turn it into a really a toxic place. And, they'll, and then those things are now over. Uh, and therefore, it's now you know very democratic, very fair, very thoughtful, and very um, successful country. Uh, but I think people just haven't got back into the habit of thinking. You know, I still have many friends who, in some cases, for very good reasons, say they won't go anywhere near it. You know, they just don't think it's a good place to go. They're, they're happy to go to France or Italy, but they won't go to Germany. And it's not because of sunshine; it's because of the, because of German history. And I, re- I respect that, but I do think that they're missing a lot in a way because there are these earlier periods where, you know, like the Leipzig where Bach lived for years, for example, is a fascinating place. And to understand Bach, you have to go there. It's that sort of thing, really, which I think people miss out on. So I'd like you to read an excerpt from your book so that our listeners can get a sense of of the wayward journey that you took uh, in yes, pursuit of, of the Germans. Germany is a sort of dead zone today. Its English-speaking visitors tend to be those with professional reasons for being there. Soldiers, historians, builders. One of the amusements at Frankfurt Airport is seeing baffled little clumps of British recent ex-students in special dark suits waiting for planes, given jobs by German banks purely because they're part of, in evolutionary terms, an alarmingly undiverse band who had happened to study German at university. Their career career choice based on a facility with languages rather than being able to, say, count or flatter clients or take smart decisions. So what do you like most about Germans? I think uh, they they take an enormous care of... I think one of the things that happened under Hitler was this terrible idea of this super state uh, rule from Berlin and incredibly harsh, arrogant, racist, an appalling place. And as a reaction to that, ever since, I think, Germans have embraced being very local. You know, a great way of getting out from under that horrible legacy is to go back to your local town and really look after it. And so small towns all over Germany, um, which in Britain or America would not be terribly interesting, in fact have their own fascinating histories because they... Uh, until the 19th century, they then generally ruled themselves in a way that, uh, yeah, it's, it's very hard for us to understand that you had several hundred very small states in some cases, you know, places like Hesse-Darmstadt or, or, or Saxony and places like this, where because they were competing with each other, they all had dukes or kings or whatever in charge of each little bit, um, like a fairy tale. Um, that they all wanted to have the best. So they all tried to build the best castle, they had the best artists and so on. And so really very small towns will tend to be filled with marvellous things of a kind you really wouldn't expect. Um, uh, really very high quality art and, and very beautiful things and a very lovely downtown area. Uh, and the people living there are very proud of this and they tend to have really lovely museums and, and be very welcoming and very pleased with what they're doing. And you can see why they like this so much because they're past has been so grim and and this is a good way of in effect unwinding from that um but it is very remarkable to see it's like a time travel journey really speaking of time travel you, you're english the the english have a, a rather unspoken connection with germany it's it's not really made reference to very much uh, these days and and that is that your royal family is essentially german aren't they Yes, no, that's very true, and that's one of the very weird 
things is if you go to Hanover, which is in um, the northwest Germany, you know, the, the kings of England for, for a long time also ruled Hanover, and they were German themselves. And say George the First and George the certainly George the First could barely speak English. George the Second couldn't speak very much English. And obviously, uh, the American favorite George the Third was next, and he uh, he was very English. I mean, he, he he lived all his life in England and barely went to Germany. But they kept that German link right through to the First World War. Um, I was looking at some photos actually the other day in an archive, and there was an amazing photo of the of just before the First World War of the German Kaiser and the English King at that point, George V. And they're both wearing the kind of spiked helmeted hat, which obviously the Germans have. Um, and this picture had a note on it saying, not for publication. You know, you cannot publish this. And clearly, at some point in the First World War, this note was put on it because it's so embarrassing because there's George V, uh, this English patriot, looking just like a German. And, you know, and they could have been talking, they both spoke fluent English and fluent German. And so there's, yes, the divorce between the two sides is really quite sudden and shocking um, and not something you'd expect because they were very close for a long time. And and they are genetically still very close. I, I have to mention because you, you do... Uh, attempt in the book to sort of deconstruct some myths and, and, and open a window into German culture and history that most people don't know about. But you do mention in your book that their food isn't very tasty. Um, yes, I've got in a lot of trouble with this. I've had lots of less angry letters from people saying, I liked your book, but you know, you're so unfair about their food. Well, I, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons I like going there, actually, is because their food's delicious. Um, it I, is. It's just... I mean, there's so many great things, like... Um, like Currywurst? There's Currywurst. Yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Currywurst <laughs> is great, and roast goose. Yeah, they do a roast goose like no one else, really. And uh, even, like, street sausages, you know, just the stuff you get on the street corner, it's just really good, you know. Um, but there's such a strong tradition in England of laughing at German food, which, of course, is funny. From My wife's American, and so she's always saying, you know, it's not for English people to make fun of German food, because <laughs> obviously English food's terrible as well. And so I think we kind of defensively kind of attack German food the whole time, just in order to make us, make us feel slightly better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for an interesting insight into into German history and people. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Simon Winder's new book is called Germania, In Wayward Pursuit of the Germans and Their History. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. familiar with Iranian cinema, its post-revolutionary neo-realist incarnation has made waves at international film festivals for three decades now. But Iranian cinema is nothing new. It began, in fact, in 1897. Professor Hamid Nafisi of Northwestern University has seen the very first Iranian film ever made. It was found in a tattered box in a closet of the Shah's old palace in Tehran. And the story of how it was made is just the beginning of his four-volume social history of Iranian cinema. He joins us today to discuss his magnum opus on Iranian cinema that was 30 years in the making. Welcome to the show, Professor Nafisi. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us what your massive new research 
project, this, these four volumes are all about? <laughs> uh, well, um, it really covers the history, the social history of cinema, of Iranian cinema. I wouldn't say uh, cinema in Iran because its cover, the coverage of the book is exceeds the Iranian uh, borders, so to speak, and it deals with uh, cinemas and films that Iranians made abroad and the, the interaction of uh, um, Iranian filmmakers and other, uh, other national cinemas with Iranian cinemas. So first of all, it has a kind of an international uh, optic, if you will. Um, uh, uh, unlike many uh, national cinema studies which focus on the cinema within the borders of the nation state, I'd like to think that national that cinema in many ways, uh, Iranian cinema in particular from early on was international and also was uh, uh, at the same time sub-national in the sense that a lot of uh, uh, minority Iranians, uh, ethnic uh, religious minorities uh, like the, uh, the Armenians, the Jews, the Baha'is, the Zoroastrians and the uh, and, uh, uh, and also the, the emigres of, Iran, of, uh, of other countries who resided in Iran and who made Iran their homes were very much uh, involved in the establishment of cinema early on. So some of the pioneers were, that, were, were, were sub-national and transnational. And the very first Iranian film was made abroad and the first uh, sound film was made abroad and the first silent feature film was made by an Armenian, Russian, Iranian guy. So it's, it, it, it was a very dynamic uh, cinema. So that's one important aspect of the, of the book, which is its, uh, it's uh, focus both very local, but also subnational, but also uh, extranational, uh, international, transnational. And so forth. So that's interesting because you, you do come a long way um, toward making it clear that that Iran and the Iranian people are not a monolith. They are ma- comprised of a number of ethnic, religious, and other uh, minorities and and majorities in in many ways. You 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 tell us in your book that Iranian cinema's transnational nature was present from the start. What do you mean by that? Um well, you know, take take the first film that we know that an uh, an Iranian shot. Uh this film was shot by the 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 Akkasbashi Ibrahim Khan Akkasbashi in 1900. Uh, and he was the official uh, court photographer to the to the Qajar court, uh, specifically to Muzaffaruddin Shah Qajar, who had gone to Europe uh, for uh, the medical treatment, but also uh, visited uh, quite a n- uh, number of uh, interesting sites. Uh, among them was the 1900 Universal Exposition in Paris, where film was a major item on on, on exhibition, and. Uh, the, the film, uh, the films in that, the films were shown in a in an amphitheater that was uh, that was round, and audiences sat in an amphitheater like uh, seating arrangements, and the screen was pulled up by a wench from the uh, from the ceiling, and uh, and as a result, the audience had to be able to see films from both sides of the screen. They sprayed water on the screen and it made it translucent and 
So the Shah goes there and for the first time watches films and, and records in his diary, which exists, as to what he saw. And he says, I like these scenes so much that I asked the official photographer to to buy the equipment. On the way back to Iran, they, they go to Belgium, to the city of Ostend, and there uh, we have the record, again by the Shah, of the first uh, uh, recording on film by an Iranian, where obviously the, the official court photographer has purchased the equipment, he, he has it with him, and it is the scene of a, what the Shah calls it, a flower parade. And this film was thought lost until 1982 when uh, Shahriar Adl, another Iranian researcher, in search of photography, photographs of the Qajar era, uh, found in uh, some uh, box inside the Golestan Palace in Tehran uh, a cache of uh, films that were deteriorating very badly. And this was amongst those, uh, those films. And so we actually have that film that shows the... Uh, 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 several carriages passing by the Shaw's place uh, full of women who are carrying flowers. And as they pass by the Shaw, they throw flowers at him and he joyously returns the flowers. So that's the first film that we have. That's extraordinary. Have you seen this film? This is literally the first Iranian film ever made, as far as researchers like yourself know. That's right. Have you seen the film? Yes, I I have. I'm actually going to bring it with me to Santa Barbara and to UCLA uh, for a lecture. It's interesting that you mention the women in the film, the women in this sort of rose parade type film to bring Mm -hmm. it back to to the California audiences. Um, Because you also mention in your book, in the first volume, that the first act of film censorship in Iranian film history involved women. Can you tell us about that? That's right, yeah. I think women very, uh, were, were, you know, constitutive of cinema in many ways. Uh, and in fact, some of the first films that that same photographer, uh, Akos Bashi, uh, made when he returned to Iran uh, was uh, films of women um, entering the train station in Shabdulazim in Tehran. Um, and, of course, at this point, they're, they're all um, wearing their chadors, uh, their, their dark black chadors from head to toe. But nevertheless, they are in public space and they're being filmed entering the station and then entering their special female uh, wagon. Um, so uh, this is another historic occasion when one of the first films that he makes when he returns to Iran is of women in public spaces. And uh, as, as you were mentioning the first act of censorship, as far as we know, occurred over uh, what the, uh, the, the, the chief uh, cleric, Sheikh Fazlullah Nouri in Tehran, had heard that uh, in 1904, in around December 1904, uh, uh, Ibrahim Khane, Sahaf Tehrani, who had opened the first commercial cinema in Tehran, uh, he was showing on his, uh, on, in his cinema pictures of women without the veil. Uh, oh, and, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's the so, whole controversy. Right. And so he, uh, he, he apparently issued a fatwa against it. And, and, and the Shah, Muzaffaruddin Shah, apparently sort of carried it out by shutting the place down. Now, there are various interpretations as to what happened. Uh, it's possible that the 
Shaw was following the religious fatwa against the cinema. And it's also possible that the Shah shut down the cinema because uh, Sahaf Washi was an active and ardent uh, constitutionalist. Uh, he was uh, fighting for, for the termination of uh, absolute monarchy, which is the rule that the Qajars were, uh, were characterized by. And he was advocating a uh, parliamentary monarchy system and and uh, so they, there are there are some who say that the Shah shut down the, the cinema because he was opposed to the activist political activism of the, of the of Sahab Bashi. Um, it's interesting that when I ask you these questions about Iranian cinema history, you. Uh, have a lot to say about the politics and governance that's going on at the time that these films are being made. What is the relationship between government, politics, and cinema in Iranian history, as far as you can tell? Well, I think, you know, cinema um, was an agent of modernity in Iran. It it brought modernity with it uh, uh, to Iran in, 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 in various ways. And 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 I think that's uh, that's one reason that the that the traditional strata of society were opposed to it. Uh, you have to remember that cin- that cinema came to Iran at the time at the height of Iranian sense of national shame in a way, because Iranians had began to travel abroad in the eighteen nineties, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, and and suddenly confront the advancement, the industrial and scientific advancement, artistic advancement of Europe and the, and the U.S. And they, they uh, felt ashamed for what had happened to them. They compared themselves, uh, the current state of Iran, to the glories of the Iranian past, and they found themselves wanting. They also compared themselves with uh, the current state of Iran, with the the current state of other developed countries. And again, they're, they're, they found themselves wanting, and they were wondering, what happened to us? We, we, we had one of the biggest empires in the world, and blah, blah, and we were so glorious, and, and so on. And we have such artistic and beautiful monuments in various cities. What happened to us? Why have we fallen so back? And so cinema, in a way, brought the image of the other directly into the Iran's heart and into them. And so many people were fascinated by it. Many people were troubled by it. And, uh, and, and, and some of them, especially the, the, the religious people, uh, brought, you know, applied their standards of, of judgment about uh, what was proper, what was uh, uh, religiously proper or not. And so cinema uh, became, uh, became um, involved in, in all kinds of politics. The other issue that's really interesting is that unlike cinema in the West, in particular in the U.S., which began as a public form of entertainment and a commercial form of entertainment, cinema began, as I mentioned early on, with the, the, the court uh, sort of sponsoring the official photographer to become a filmmaker. Well, Professor Nafisi, we're, we're almost out of time, but I would like to get to your second volume if I could. Sure. Before we, we finish the, the interview. So in your second volume, you cover the, the period of cinema that 
many Iranians are familiar with, especially Iranians abroad who had ever had access to Parse Video, which <laughs> which is a company based in in California actually that uh, that has. Um, packaged and made videos and DVDs of of old Iranian films from this time. And and anyone who has seen a parse video film from this era knows that there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of car chases, there's a lot mm-hmm. of comedy. This this was a new time in Iranian cinema. Tell us about this time. Yes, it, it was a, the, 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 the time of efflorescence of cinema. And basically, to make it more more understandable, one could say that two parallel cinemas uh, emerged side by side. One was the what uh, uh, Iranian critics uh, derisively called "fin farsi," uh, which meant uh, you know lowbrow Persian language films, and these are the films that you were you were just describing that involved car chases, uh, fights amongst the men, sexy women doing sexy dances for generally male male audience kind of melodramatic, uh, comic uh, stories involving families and so forth. Uh, and these, this was the commercial popular cinema that most people went to see and they liked a lot. Uh, and a lot of people who were working in this kind of cinema after the revolution were pushed out of the country or chose to come into exile. That's why we have so many singers and dancers and musicians and actors from that, that genre of film in Los Angeles. Uh, then the other parallel cinema that existed was the kind of a dissident art cinema um, that developed particularly in the 60s and 70s. And it, and it became a, it actually gave Iranian cinema an international name because for the first time these films went abroad uh, with Merjui's film, uh, The, the, the Cow. Merjui, The Cow which was, uh, was was funded by the state. This is the, uh, the the dilemma of the art cinema filmmakers in those days, uh, namely that they were funded by the state, by the Ministry of Culture and Art, and at the same time they were often banned by the same state. Mehjuri's film, The Cow, was funded by the ministry, and for three years it was, uh, it was banned. And one of his friends was able to, a French guy, took a, a copy of, of it with him to France, and in his suitcase, and then entered it in the uh, in the Venice Film Festival, even without subtitling, and it, it it really went off like a bomb there, and put the Iranian cinema on the international map of uh, avant-garde films. And it put us on course for the next two volumes of your book that are coming out in 2012, and and we. Uh, Wish you all the best. We're looking forward to seeing those two volumes. I'm so sorry we're out of time, but... Uh, thank, you. thank you very much thank for, you. for the time you gave. Hamid Nafisi is the professor of radio, television, film, and the Hamid bin Khalifa Al-Thani professor in communication at Northwestern University. His new four-volume book is called The Social History of Iranian Cinema. Thanks for listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi.